I had a lot of desperate moments because I wrote at least three unpublished novels before Presumed Innocent. Weirdly, you know, this desperate feeling that I had where if I could just hold in my own hands a copy of a book that I've written, you know, a published copy, you know, my life would have some meaning. Scott Turow has had that experience many times as one of the most prominent authors of the legal thriller, starting with a terrific book that turned into a terrific movie, Presumed Innocent. I'm Bud Mishkin, and this is Before the Cheering Started, a podcast all about the journey to success, the early years when that success was by no means guaranteed, the Before the Cheering Started years. Scott Turow's books are read all over the country and all over the world, but he's a Chicago guy. That's where his story starts and continues to this day. Scott, after all these years, is there something in the process for you now as you write this latest book? Is there a new element to it in terms, not in terms of what you're writing about, but in terms of how you go about your business? Do you discover new things along the way or is it a a tried and true process that has worked for you in the past and you stick with that through every book? Well, um, the answer is yes and no. Yes, I have a process that I discovered accidentally, which was just because I was at that point an assistant U.S. attorney writing 30 minutes a day in the morning commuter train. So I wrote down these little scraps um, unconnected, uh, and then eventually was able to draw them together, uh, write a coherent first draft. Uh, and that's still the method. I wander around, as I put it, I wander around inside the book. Um, and, uh, you know, I find the voices, I find the characters. Uh, that remains consistent. With suspect, what was a little different um, was that uh, I've tried to avoid the dread disease of successful authors, which is uh, repeating themselves. And so with Suspect, I both wrote from the point of view of somebody who's 40 years younger than I am, which was a task uh, and a challenge that you know I wasn't positive I could succeed with. And the other was that it's the first time I've written uh, one of these novels where the main character is not actually an attorney. So uh, never an actual lawyer's point of view. Um, But, you know, so somebody who can turn around and say periodically, the law is an ass. It's an interesting uh, picture that you paint of you on the commuter train years ago, going into work for at the DA's office and you're and you're writing. Right. So at that moment, uh, take us to that moment. Are you or those days, are you writing because you like to write or are you writing because no, I've got something in mind here. I have a goal in mind and here's how I'm going to reach that goal. Right. Well, my, you know, my my story, bud, is um, a a virtually perfect one for your audience, because um, I from the time I was 11 years old, I announced that I was going to be a novelist. And um, my parents uh, were not particularly happy about that 
because they wanted me to follow in my father's footsteps and become a doctor uh, like him. And long short, I didn't want to be like my dad for complex reasons. He was a great doctor, not not such a great father. Um, and, uh, you know, I pursued that goal relentlessly through college, won writing fellowships, one of which took me to the writing program at Stanford. I was there for two years as a fellow that got hired at the absolute steerage level of the faculty and taught creative writing for three years, at which point I realized that the list of jobs I didn't want included not only doctor now, but also English professor and started casting around for something <laughs> else that I was really interested in. Uh, and that, to my shock, turned out to be law. And I went to law school. And the hard part about going to law school was, of course, the uh, archaic and sexist saying that the law is a jealous mistress. Uh, and my friends all told me I wouldn't have time to write if I went to law school. And I vowed, I made this adamant uh, vow that I was going to find time to write. Uh, even as a lawyer. And that is what brought me to the morning commuter train and scribbling for 28 minutes on my way into the city. Where does that early love of writing and writers come from? You say you announced when you were 11. Is that uh, books that were in the house? Is that, you know, Chicago's a great newspaper town, Chicago Tribune. Are you reading the, the newspaper and getting falling in love with writing? Where did it come from? Well, um, I definitely was a newspaper reader from a very early age. In my case and in my house, it was the Chicago Sun-Times, uh, now weirdly owned by our local public radio station. Uh, and uh, But the Sun-Times always has had a phenomenal sports page. And that's that's what I read every day. But, you know, my my idea about being a novelist came from write, reading The Count of Monte Cristo. I was a famous malingerer, and my mom, who was a former teacher, was smart enough not to fight with me about not going to school. She just required me uh, to be reading if I was at home. So during one of these uh, illnesses, she gave me The Count of Monte Cristo uh, and said, you're old enough to read this. Well, I loved it. I was absolutely captivated. And I had the naive conclusion that if it was that exciting to read this book, imagine how much more exciting it was to write that book. And uh, I didn't know the pain, um, you know, the anxiety that sometimes goes with writing novels. And uh, that was just that was my conclusion at the age of 11. It was, um, it was probably a decade, no, less than that. I would say it was about 19 or 20 years old before I really felt that kind of um, elevation, the sense of literally taking flight in my own imagination. Um, and I uh, was in college and wrote a short story that was eventually published. Um, and, you know, it, but th from, from the 11-year-old to the 
20-year-old um, was uh, the bridge between the two of them was a lot of hard work, a lot of mistakes, a lot of pages logged, many of them not necessarily very good ones. Mistakes, how, how so? You know, uh, one of the sayings I've always kept in mind, you know, Norman Mailer used to write these commonplace books where he would connect um, basically journalistic pieces he had written with, you know, connective autobiography. And I've always vowed I'm going to try to do the same thing. I haven't yet. But in one of those books, I think it was probably Cannibals and Christians, says the horrible thing about being a novelist is that uh, you can make a mistake and not realize it for six months. And, <laughs> um, you know, so there were frequently the wrong subject um, and a lot of just groping around within myself to figure out what, what would give me that kind of Count of Monte Cristo excitement. Um, I didn't, I didn't really know. Um, and, uh, so th that's what I mean when I say mistakes. That conversation, that initial conversation with your folks, I'm going to be a novelist. Um, was it an ongoing conversation throughout your teens going into college or you had it once and that was that? Yes. My mother who wanted to be a novelist herself, so she couldn't trash talk this ambition too much. Um, <laughs> You know, she never had either the, time, either the time or discipline. But she talked to me a lot about, you know, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, uh, saying, well, you can, he was a doctor. Uh, he, he wrote, you can be a doctor and you can write. Uh, I'm not positive whether or not she mentioned William Carlos Williams. But, you know, th there were lots of, lots of examples. And I probably, because of her, um, telling me that you could have a professional education and still be a novelist. Um, that's probably what was circulating in my unconscious when I said, I'll go to law school, but still try to write novels. So, uh, but yeah, my mom never gave up that way. My father just resented it. And when Presumed Innocent came out, you know, by the time I handed it to my dad, it was... Um, rocketing up the bestseller lists that have been sold to the movies as the basis of a feature film that got made. So I hand the book to my dad, uh, and there's absolute silence. And I'm not sure he'd ever read anything else I had written. I, um, finally, I couldn't stand it anymore. I said, Dad, did you read my book? And he was like, yeah, I read your book. I said, and what do you think? He says, I think you still could have gone to medical school. So that was, uh, that's the ongoing conversation with my parents. The comedian Robert Klein has told me in interviews that he, as his career is getting going and it's going great, and he fills Carnegie Hall, standing room only, big ovation at the end. His mother apparently turns to someone and says, you know, and if this doesn't work out, he can still go back to teaching. So. <laughs> <laughs> so when you're at Stanford and, and then you're going to go to Harvard Law, you're comfortable with this notion of, yeah, I can do this, go to Harvard Law and, and follow the law. And that does not mean that's not the death knell for my writing career. 
you're comfortable with the merging of the two? Well, um, it may have been a bit of lying to myself because I didn't, I had no idea how hard lawyers work or what the, frankly, emotional demands are um, of jobs like I held, you know, the jobs in the, in the criminal world, whether as a prosecutor or as a defense lawyer, take a, a substantial toll uh, emotionally. Uh, because as a prosecutor, you feel that the safety of the community, as it were, uh, is in your hands in a small but significant way. And as a defense lawyer, uh, the fate and liberty of another human being is your responsibility. So, you know, I, I didn't have any idea how hard that would be emotionally or how absorbing or demanding. And uh, I'm just looking at it and thinking, well, I can always uh, write. I do remember setting as a goal for myself to write one good short story every year. I didn't, I didn't think that I was going to have hours and hours and hours available. Was there ever a fear while you were still a prosecutor that uh, the writing was getting in the way or getting in the way of a particular case that, oh, uh, upon retro in retrospect, I could have handled this differently or because I was focusing on this story that I wanted to write, th did the, the merging work well or was there ever times when it wasn't working so well? well? Well, there's one intervening piece that I should mention, which is that when I announced I was going to law school, my then literary agent, um, through a typical and complicated misunderstanding between us, secured a contract for me to write a nonfiction book about being a law student, which I did. Uh, and that book called 1L um, remains in print today. Uh, so I did have that um, you know, huge confidence boost uh, that came from finding out uh, that, in essence, going to law school was going to be the great break of my literary career. <laughs> uh, and, I, you know, I published 1L. It had been extremely well received. It had sold better than most first books, uh, touched a few of the bestseller lists. Uh, and then I made the sort of weird decision that notwithstanding the success of that book, I was going to go ahead and practice law because what had really propelled me to law school was this incredible fascination with the law. And, you know, it had not abated. And frankly, my years at Stanford, uh, where I was sort of demanding success from myself uh, without, um, without much basis, um, you know, I didn't want to go back to that. There was, that was a state of stress and anxiety. And, um, you know, I, I wanted to write the way I actually ended up writing on the morning commuter train, which is not thinking about the preciousness of each word or whether this was, you know, exactly right or deathless or whatever, just having something inside that I needed to express. Uh, and that was what had gone on in writing the diary that was the basis for 1L. And that actually uh, is the way I still write. Um, so, But I only found that when I went to law school.
And on those trips, those commuter trips, I would imagine, based on the timing we're talking about here, you're doing this longhand, yes? I am doing it longhand. Um, I'm using uh, the, the, rear, the back blank pages of notebooks from law school. Uh, and, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm writing away longhand. Were it not for the invention of the personal computer, um, then I, I, we would not be having this conversation. Hmm. And, uh, you know, I give my ex-wife a lot of credit uh, at several critical junctures. She really had wanted to be married to a writer. She was not very happy that she ended up married to a lawyer. So whenever I wanted to do something for my writing career while I was practicing law, she always supported it. And I, you know, those were salad days. I walked in and I basically said, how would you feel if I spend like half of what's in our savings account uh, to buy one of these computer things? And I bought a, a used portable computer uh, that had been ironically, previously used by the U.S. Postal Service. And the portable computer weighed a mere 40 pounds, uh, but uh, with a three-week um, interval in my job as a prosecutor, I sort of typed in everything I'd handwritten on presumed innocent, began getting it in order, and began discovering the capacity of that machine to put you know, the, the scraps together. Is there a seminal moment for you when you say to yourself, all right, I am leaving the law and focusing 100% on the writing, or is it, is, is it not quite so black and white? There, there never was such a moment, but I think the, um, the only time I made that uh, decision was two years ago when I finally retired as a partner mm -hmm. in my law firm. I did have a seminal moment. Uh, I was on trial in Kansas City, and the one of the lawyers on the other side came in and said to me, I just saw the paperback of Presumed Innocent on sale uh, down, downstairs in uh, the drugstore at the first level of the building where we were uh, jousting. And I was like... Um, why this is a total disconnect but it was like i was like something is wrong with my life uh if i'm working so hard as a lawyer that i don't even know the paperback has been published <laughs> and i went back to chicago uh after this trial i said to my partners we have to have a better arrangement where i can write um and originally i went to three quarters time as a lawyer that dwindled over the years uh, you know, there was a point in time when I began doing principally pro bono work rather than paying work, but I never stopped the paying work. Um, and uh, so, uh, but that was as close to a seminal moment mm. as I got when I said, this, this isn't right. I can't, I can't live this life this way. From my experience in talking to writers and interviewing writers through the years, it seems like there's usually a period of desperation, even though they love the writing, desperate for something to hit. Um, knowing that you had the legal background and were continuing with the legal work, did you ever have that 
moment or that period as a, a writer early on of desperation or because you had the backup, it wasn't so desperate? No, I, I mean, as a writer, um, you know, before I went to law school, um, I had um, I had a lot of desperate moments um, because, you know, I, I, I wrote at least three unpublished novels before Presumed Innocent. The last one I thought um, was reasonably good. Uh, I can go back and read it and still think it's reasonably good. But, you know, the timing was very bad. It was a hippie novel at a time when hippies, Americans were sick unto death of hippies. Was, you know, I didn't finish it till 1974. So, um, you know, and, and weirdly, you know, this desperate feeling that I had where, you know, if I could just hold in my own hands a copy of a book that I've written, you know, a published copy, you know, my life would have some meaning. And of course, I, I did have that experience in 1977 when uh, 1L was published, but it was, of course, nothing to rival the experience of, that I had in late 1978 when I held my daughter. So, um, and at that, at that point, I knew um, what I'd actually been yearning for. Um, so, uh, but yeah, I, 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 there were a lot of desperate hours, a uh, lot of depression, a lot of compulsion. Uh, if I just work harder, this will be better. And, uh, you know, I was trying to hammer out of myself and out of the book uh, something that, you know, just just wasn't there at that point. I remember uh, my beloved teacher at Stanford, Dick Scowcroft, who Dick and Wally Stegner were my two principal um, mentors there, along with a great short story writer named Nancy Packer. And, um, you know, Dick finally took this book away from me that I had been working on at, at Stanford. He, you know, he just, he was fundamentally saying, you know, you're driving yourself crazy. Whatever it is, it is. Let go of it. Give it to me. Um, and you need someone to read this. And and I complied, and I could tell when he read it that he thought, well, you know, this is never going to be Moby Dick. <laughs> so what pulls a writer through in those moments to continue to keep doing it uh, because you love to do it, even though it's, it is a, is a job that's done in solitude, yeah. uh, without others around until you finally hit and a book is being read and has tentacles so far beyond Chicago, even the United States work that's being read around the world to get to that moment. What pulls you through? You know, uh, as I've told my story, I've always wondered if it was stubbornness and will rather than ability that, um, that you know, made me a novelist. And there was certainly a lot of um, building up the mental muscles that are involved uh, in being able to connect thoughts and feelings to words. 
But I had had that experience, you know, when I went chugging off to law school. And oddly, the experience of writing this nonfiction book was so affirming to me as a writer because, you know, going to law school was to some extent for me an admission of failure. As a, as a writer, I hadn't gotten a novel published. I couldn't support myself. I wasn't willing, uh, you know, to be another would-be who was supporting himself as an, as an English teacher. Um, and what came pouring out of me in law school, uh, where I was writing about my, you know, torment and confusion, both as a person and as a law student, um, I knew what I was getting down on the page was good by my own lights. It was what I wanted to express. Um, and so weirdly, I go out to law school, I'm writing this book in the stolen hours uh, as a law student, uh, and I know I'm ringing the bell. I'm, I'm you know, the harp string in my own chest was, uh, you know, was resounding. So, uh, and, you know, that, if you want to say what kept you going, um, certainly it was those moments. Is there a thread that you can draw through your many years in both professions from a good moment in court to a good day writing? Um, you know, I've, I've thought about this a lot. And that the truth of the matter, at least for me, um, a lot of my, you know, vexation and turmoil as a lawyer um, has fed uh, my legal work, but um, there are two kind of epiphanal moments. Uh, and, you know, one is that moment as a writer where, you know, that I had, um, again, the summer that I finished Presumed Innocent, where I felt like I was using my entire self. Um, what I knew about the law, what I knew about being a prosecutor, what I knew about writing, and um, that was all, all being, um, you know, fused and emerging on the page. Uh, the other side, though, being a trial lawyer, um, yeah, there are great cross-examinations and the feeling that, um, you know, you've revealed the truth. But the most exciting moment is, a, is when a jury announces it has a verdict and right before they come into the room. And because you have so much at stake with what they are going to say, and because in criminal cases, uh, so much is at stake for another human being. Uh, and the kind of cases I was trying as a prosecutor, I felt, you know, there was a tremendous amount at stake, you know, in, in big corruption cases, you're trying, you're trying a judge for taking bribes. You know, I, history was going to be made, you know, it was completely out of my control. Um, and, you know, it was going to be whatever these people said, I was either going to have to have failed at my important job or succeeded, uh, and the community would go forward with a new understanding, at least when it came to Judge Olzer. And um, 
those are teetering, uh, anxious, uh, and ultimately triumphant moments, but incomparable to anything else. Maybe waiting for the birth of a child and, you know, being certain that the kid is healthy and then you learn the gender, that's an equal reveal. But um, in my heart of hearts, I always knew these babies were going to be healthy. And I frankly never cared that much about what gender. Uh, so it, it, the, nothing is quite like the moment when a verdict is delivered. Hmm. Uh, books have been made into movies pretty much as long as there have been movies. Uh, and Presumed Innocent, take a terrific book. It's made into a terrific movie. Is there something in particular that you remember about that experience? I, you know, I remember lots of different things. Um, the funniest moment, though, to me, was, you know, I, I had, bear in mind, so I've written three novels. They never found a publisher, occasionally a nice note from a publisher that was about as successful as those books were. All of a sudden, you know, the world is banging on my door for this manuscript. There's an auction and, you know, different publishers are vying for the chance to buy my book. Um, and all, and then not long after that, you know, the people from the movies have got the manuscript in their hand and they're calling. And the first offer that was made was made by David O. Brown, a fine producer, the uh, late husband of the late Helen Gurley Brown, who ran Cosmopolitan. And um, my agent in Hollywood, uh, at that time a fellow named Bob Bookman, calls me and tells me what David O'Brown has offered for the rights to presumed innocent. And that sum of money that Mr. Brown was offering was more than I had earned in my eight years as an assistant United States attorney. And I said, I said to Bob, okay, what do I do? He says, turn it down. There'll be more. And I, you know, I, and I just laughed. I didn't know that there was going to be more, but the feeling of freedom of being able to say, okay, screw it, um, you know, roll the dice uh, was, you know, was a, a very heady moment. Speaking of heady moments, I'm always intrigued by people who are in positions that 99.99% .99 of the rest of us will not be in. And in Time Magazine, 1990 puts you on the cover. Right. Uh, this, you know, for, for the internet age or generation, they don't quite get, I don't think, the power of being on the cover of Time Magazine yeah. and Newsweek once upon a time. Yeah, there, there is, in, in our diffuse media world, there is, there is no way um, to completely imagine this. And, uh, you know, it coincided with my 20th college reunion. And it was significant enough that I gathered all my former roommates around before I left after that weekend to say, okay, I want you guys to prepare yourself because on Monday morning, Time Magazine is going to come out and I'm going to be on the cover. Uh, and I can't leave here without telling you that. Um, yeah, it was, uh, I don't know, you know, it was, uh, it, so much was happening in my life. You knew it was coming. Oh yeah. You have to pose for all those ridiculous pictures. I mean, <laughs> um, 
don't get me started on photo editors. But yeah, I mean, I'd spent two days being photographed. I knew I knew it was coming. Uh, and uh, I didn't know what, you know, I didn't know what the review was going to say. I um, had no idea what the article was going to say. I didn't think they put me on the cover to slam me completely. Right. But, um, you know, it was, uh, it was a neat moment for me. And it, beyond me, um, you know, a whole uh, army of other novelists to come, uh, Grisham and my friend Rick Patterson, Richard North Patterson, and, um, and you know, a dozen of other dozen others who, uh, you know, benefited from the announcement of the power of the so-called legal thriller, and uh, you know that established not only me but the place of you know law-related fiction in the publishing world. Talk about a great line to come to reunion with. I mean, <laughs> going to college. <laughs> going to college reunion, you, you want to go in strong. You know, everybody who comes to reunion wants, you don't want to, you know, be there after you've just been laid off. But coming in with the line, yeah, yeah. you might want to pick up Time Magazine in a couple of days. That's pretty good. And I have to say, the group of people I was speaking to, uh, my college roommates were uh, by then and continued to be incredibly accomplished human beings. So, um, they they had no need to feel put down by this, and they didn't. Uh, they, they'd all done remarkable things in their own right. One final thing, Scott. It's You've been doing this for quite some time. Are there times through the years, uh, not necessarily at the publication of a book or some big moment where there are moments to reflect on, you know, I had an idea all those years ago. Yeah. And I saw it through and it, and it happened. Yeah. Um, well, um, to go a little sideways on your question, the, the moment um, where this has struck me uh, most forcefully is when I'm standing on a film set. Uh, and I've been lucky that there have been, you know, a lot of films and more to come. Uh, apparently, and, uh, you know, Presumed Innocent, for example, is being remade as an eight-parter by Apple TV+, and Suspect, the new book, has been optioned. Uh, but you stand there, uh, and all of a sudden you look around, and there are 200 people working, um, and working hard to bring uh, to reality something that was you know, all inside your head, uh, you know, a, a period of time before. And, uh, you know, and that is quite remarkable. With, with the success of Presumed Innocent, there were periods of time where I really thought, um, you know, there was a short story called The Man Who Would Be King. And he was living inside a world that was actually existed in the ring on his finger. And I thought I might have been having that kind of experience where I created my own alternate reality. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, where all of a sudden I was, you know, had literary success and, you know, outward success in a way that I really never had actually imagined for myself. 
And there were a couple of moments, uh, weird moments, you wouldn't believe it, where I'd walk in the house and uh, my then young daughter would come to greet me and I would go, you know, I have everything all of a sudden. You know, how, how did this happen? Uh, maybe it hasn't happened. Maybe I'm just imagining it. Well, Scott, thank you so much. Uh, you should know that um, whenever something I, I, at work or personal life, when something goes wrong, either that I've done something wrong or somebody else, um, I will invoke the words from Raul Julia, Raul Julia's character. What a colossal blunder. Yeah. Which, <laughs> yeah, I've said that about myself beautiful. more than once. Yeah. So I've quoted myself. <laughs> Scott Turo. His latest book is another legal thriller, Suspect. Before the Cheering Started is a production of June 14th Productions and Gemini 13 Productions. This episode was created and written and produced by me. Guitar playing? That's me as well. No extra charge. The episode was edited by Lou Pellegrino. I'm Bud Mishkin, and this is Before the Cheering Started. Thanks for joining us on The Journey.